Excited to be here, excited to see you. For some reason, I kind of feel like that person that shows up behind the curtain, you're waiting for this show for about the past hour, you're seated, waited, and they come out and say, I'm sorry, the Star Six not coming out, the show's canceled. So I don't know, I kind of feel like that person here to tell you, sorry, Pastor, as you can see, Pastor Farrell's not here, uh, and I'm pitch heading for him and, uh, and, and Coven Grace and Granite this morning. We're not using our notes because I didn't really want to overlap with what he's already covering. I, I know he's already put work into covering those notes, and I didn't want to uh, jump over that. And I decided to go ahead and take just a something else that I, I, I pray is helpful for, for men, the desire when you see men gathering. It reminds me of our monthly uh, gatherings on, on the mission field with my men, you know, nine men around a table just sharing their word, help them grow in the word, and anchored in truth. And seeing you guys gathered here this morning uh, reminds me of those, of those special times. Also, has the, the added pressure is that you're up early for hopefully a good reason. So, you know, if you just get together on Sunday school, you're here anyway. But now I'd say, okay, they got, they got up this morning. I better make sure that we uh, use our time in a profitable way. So I'm, I'm going to cover something that's been... Uh, on my heart, and something I, I believe that many of us as, as men struggle with to a certain extent, and it really anchors how we live our lives, and uh, it's called a holy calling. So I have more notes than I need. It's kind of like Pastor Brody, usually when he gives notes, he has three times as much of the notes as he really needs, but I've got more than I need this morning, but we'll just walk through what we have and, and, and go from there. Me first open up a word of prayer and then commit this time to the Lord. Father, we uh, are grateful that we're gathered here this morning. Lord, we have truth. There's a reason why we gather. I mean, it makes no sense from a worldly perspective to get up before work, an additional hour to gather with other men around your truth, around your word, with a desire to come to you, Lord, and live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. And so, Lord, I commit this to you. I thank you for these men. They all come here with, no doubt, dozens of things in their minds, things they, their to-do, their to-do list for the day, uh, their concerns that weigh upon them. Help us, Lord, to put those at your feet for the next hour and just uh, contemplate your calling. So I thank you, Lord, for these moments. In your name we pray. Amen. I feel the need before I, I get started to, you know, I don't, I try not to follow too much of politics these days, and just when I thought, Things were toxic in politics. They just got even more toxic with the ongoing of, of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But, you know, the first thing that came to mind whenever I, I thought about her, her passing is here she is sitting on the highest court of the land, making decisions that impact an entire society culturally, uh, what's accepted, what's considered the norm, what's considered good and bad. And now she finds herself like we all will find ourselves before a higher court. She's going to find herself before a higher court with the supreme judge. I saw an article about how many opinions she wrote. And the only thing I could think of is the only opinion that's going to count is the one she's going to face before that ultimate judge, that ultimate God. That's the only opinion that's going to count. What a... What a way to end your life, contemplating eternity, and knowing you're going to face the one, in our case, the one who's called you, and what that, what that means. So when I thought about grace and granite, we think about biblical manhood, we think about you know, what, do we, what do we need as men, and some areas, what are areas specific to men that we should be concerned about? What are areas that we men, as biblical men, should be concerned about? We should be concerned about leadership, about, about shepherding, about service, about discernment, about teaching, about administrating. There are so many tasks that are reserved specifically to, designed for specifically godly, godly men. So what drives us to be godly men? What drives us to, to get up and do what is pleasing them to the Lord, take up the responsibilities that godly men, lead as godly men? What drives us to do so? And I want to look at 
So if you turn your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 1, um, we're going to be reading verses 8 through, through 14. Yeah, I, put the, I wasn't sure if I put the entire passage. I did put the text in your, in your notes so you have it there, unless you're reading a different, different version as well. He talks about a, a holy calling. And what I want to do this morning, if we have just a, in the next hour, is to contemplate what it means to be called. Not just to be called into salvation, but all that that encompasses. And what it means to have a, a holy calling separated as unto the Lord. So in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. Through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles, and for this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that what I have committed to him until that day. Paul always speaks with such conviction, with such purpose, with such passion. He's, he believes and he's persuaded. And he relies and he refers back to this call, this holy calling that he has received. And we as men, if, if what we do is, if, if we do what we do because we, we choose to do it, or we're asked to do it, or we feel the need to do it, or we just want to do it, not because we're, we're called to do it, what a difference that makes. I mean, if we do what we do because we're, we choose to do it, then I can determine at some point to quit doing it. I mean, I made a decision. Well, I've changed my mind. I mean, if you, if you do what you're asked to do, well, you can decline the invitation. Would you please, you know, would you do this? No, I, I think I'll just, I'll just turn that down. I texted Nathan last night thinking, I don't know why I accepted to do this this morning. I should have declined that invitation. I guess when, when Brian said something, I took it as a call, and I took it as a holy calling if you feel like it, if you do something because you feel like it, then you can no longer do it when you, don't, when you don't desire to do it anymore. And if you do something just because you want to do it, when you, when you lose interest, you quit doing it. I mean, there's something about man when we do something, what drives us to do it? What persuades us to do it? What, pers- what pushes us to be the men of God we're called to do? If, it is, if it's not anchored in a holy calling, then at some point we could turn and go our, our separate ways. But there's something about the calling that the emphasis is no longer on, on me, but is on the one doing the calling. When my focus for my life is not on what I want to do, desire to do, passionate about it, gifted with, and all these other feelings that are attached to that, when my, when my life is anchored in a call, my response is completely different. Because now the focus is no longer on me, on what I want to do, what I desire, my, where my feelings are, is anchored in what God wants for me and God's calling upon my life. Every single time when we're dealing with an issue, and we're, we're, we're struggling through deciding how to respond to, to conflict, how to respond to, to pain and suffering, the number one thing that should drive us is, is what? Well, what would be pleasing unto the Lord? Because what I desire doesn't really matter, but the one who called me and with this holy calling, there, that does matter. So, when you prepare for Grace and Granite, just a little bit tidbit what goes on behind the curtain, you spend half your time looking for a video because Pastor started this tradition of having a video. So, after about two hours of searching videos, and of course, I've got to look, I've got to look in names, you know, you've got to go MacArthur Piper, otherwise you're like, somehow, I, I missed my calling. So, I, I couldn't find anything, so Mark Hager found 
a three-minute video from Piper on the call. And don't miss that first word, but he's talking about the calling. Nathan, could you go ahead and play that, please? We're considering our calling. We're obeying verse 26. There are Jews not called, Gentiles not called, Jews and Gentiles, some of whom are called. And then he describes the response of each to the cross. Jews, yeah, stumbling block, crucified Messiah, never heard of such a thing. Gentiles, foolishness, a dying God, silly, mythological, called power, my God. What kind of call is that? I'll tell you what kind of call it is. It's the kind of call that creates what it commands. The call gives light. The call creates sight. The call raises the dead. Lazarus, come forth. He didn't decide to. The call raised him from the dead. Let me give you a an analogy that could be misleading, it helps me. Just to get your hand around it, because lots of you have never been taught about the call of God. The mighty, effectual, irresistible, powerful, saving, wakening, life-giving call of God that saved you. You've never been taught about this. So you need a little analogy to help you. What is he talking about? I've never heard anything like this. I thought I just believed in Jesus and and... Suppose somebody is asleep and you want to wake them up. What do you do? Well, you bend over. They're sound asleep. You bend over them and you say, wake up! (laughs) And they bolt right upright. Now, what are the dynamics of that moment? They were sound asleep and bang, they were awake. Did, Did they... Did they hear the call and say, I'll think about that before I wake up. And then, and then I'll, I'll decide if I want to wake up. That is a good analogy. When God issues a call to your dead heart and says, wake up, you wake up. You did not make yourself a Christian. Just face it, you didn't make yourself a Christian, which is why you should feel so incredibly loved. In fact, if you need a text to say that, just go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul says, just as clearly as can be, because of his great love. It's the only place he uses that phrase in all the New Testament. Because of his great love, he made you alive when you were dead. So if you have any spiritual life in you at all, you have been greatly loved. It's called regeneration. It's called calling. You have been called and you are greatly loved in this calling. I wasn't sure if Piper's going to be a little too, too emotional for us this early in the morning, but he always is so, so passionate Beautiful words, though, the way he says that. And I want to unpack a little bit of what that means for our calling, because really when we contemplate our calling, I mean, what a difference in the way we live our lives. And specifically, what a difference it makes with one thing that usually troubles men is our sense of identity around who we are, tied to what we're doing. I went through that a number, and I had to, I had to battle that question a number of times. When, you, when you're a missionary and you live on a foreign field, it was, I worked from home before working from home was popular, right? Now working from home, it becomes the norm. So I could be in France now working from home. Everybody thinks it's normal. But at the time, you're working from home, and people say, what do you do? The dreaded question, what do I do? Well, I'm a missionary. I think, well, great. Well, you go into the heathen then until they realize, wait a minute. Are you saying I'm the heathen? But you... Constantly living a life in society where you don't really have your place. You don't belong there. I mean, what's a missionary doing here? What does that even mean? And so you're, you're always sensing for this sense of identity. It's amazing how everyone, every, every man particularly, finds that sense of identity in his skill set, in his job, in his title. And then when we're asked to come back off the field and come back here, 
to lose a title that I've been carrying for 20 plus years, missionary to France, and losing that title. It's easy for so many years. What are you? We're missionaries in France. Oh, how about, great. And then you lose that title, and you acquire another title, and then you're constantly shifting identities around who you are. And as men, how, how much weight does that carry understanding who we are? But when we rest and settle in the call of God, there's something extremely peaceful, comforting, and knowing that we rest in a holy call and what that means for our lives. So in, in our passage here, as he's speaking to this in, in, our, in, our, in our text in 2 Timothy chapter 1, we know the context with, with Timothy. He's uh, obviously Paul addressing him and encouraging him in his faith. And he, he speaks the first in that first part of that verse, verse, uh, verse 9, who has saved us. It's an all-inclusive word that speaks to, to all that was, is in respect to our redemption. He's not talking about salvation as a moment of salvation, but as a calling to salvation with all that that encompasses. And then he says he calls us with a holy calling. It speaks to the means which he brings salvation. He brings, I put down a definition of calling here. And there's a, there's a word here that's significant in this definition. He said the truth, here's a, here's a definition of calling. Now, I'll, I'll preface it something else here. I didn't put in my notes. A lot of this was inspired. I read a book two years ago that I pulled back out recently to go back over called um, The Call from Oz Guinness. Now, my concern in being in this environment, I'm thinking, I don't know the author enough to know if I should recommend him. Because someone's going to come to me and tell me he's not reformed. And he's got this bad position somewhere else. So I, I'm not going to recommend the guy because I don't know enough about him. But he just said some great things about the call that blessed me. And I, uh, some of these notes here are drawn from, from his book that's been around for a long time. But he's more of a British philosopher than he is a Reformed theologian. So just a word of warning there. But I won't give credit for this is where this definition comes from. The truth that God calls us to himself so decisively... That everything we are and everything we do and everything we have is invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived out as a response to his summons and service. I like the way Piper describes the, describes the, the, the passion behind being called. It's not just, oh yeah, yeah, I was called someday. It's the, the response to it. The passion behind it. And I like the word here. He says, so the, the call, the truth that God calls us so decisively. The effective nature of this calling that everything we do and everything we have is invested in a special devotion as a response to that call. There's not a separate call to salvation, and we've heard this before here. There's not a special call to salvation and a special call to holy living. There's a call. That call is a call to salvation, and it follows, and it leads, and it Part of that is understanding of, of a holy calling, a holy separation, and a holy living. It's all-encompassing. 1 Peter 2.9, a couple of references I put in your notes. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in what? In all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So I want to see two things this morning. One thing, I want to see the, the nature of the call, and I want to walk through Second Timothy and briefly look at the, the nature of the call, contemplate what it means to be called. That truth alone, as you contemplate that, just brings us to our knees in great in gratefulness and admiration. I mean, called. And secondly, I want to see the all-encompassing quality of the call and, and, and point to how it impacts all areas of our life and bring some things out to that as well. So the, the first thing we see in verse 9 that is just walking through pretty obviously here, one, it's not the nature of the call. One, it's not according to our works. Titus 3 says that as well, right? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Romans 9 says that though we have, you, you were not born and had been, uh, done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who, who calls. 
What are, what are the ramifications of understanding that our call is completely not according to our works? What difference does it make in how we live our lives? I mean, the, the truth being told, be that God, that God saves us. God's cause us to salvation. Why is it so significant to understand that is not by works? Nothing that I could have contributed to that. So if works get me in, works can get me out. Every time I've had someone struggle with salvation, you know what they struggle with? Their contribution to salvation. Every time I've had someone doubt their salvation, given that they, they knew the Lord, right? They struggled with their contribution to it. Did I pray enough? Was I sincere enough? Did I understand enough? Was I old enough? Was I serious enough? It's always that one fragment of their participation that they lean on and question and doubt. What a difference it makes if I understand that this is not something I've contributed to. Again, the, the whole weight shifts on what? Well, the whole weight shifts on the one calling. The whole weight of my life doesn't shift on, on a decision I made, on a feeling I had. It shifts on the one who called and my response to that call. It brings, it brings such stability. We lose the need to compare ourselves to others. It brings such stability in our lives because my life rests not on anything I could have added to it, but it rests on the one who's called me. And our identity is received. Our identity in Christ, I put down the notes, is received and not achieved. I tell you right there, that's enough for me. And every time I'm tempted to, as in James 1 speaks of, every time I'm tempted to be tossed around, to rest in the, in the knowledge and understanding that my identity rests in what I've received in Christ and not what I've achieved in Him. What, what stability and calmness it brings to my life. Second thing we see in these verses, verse 9 and 10, not according to anything we've added to it, but according to His purpose and according to His grace. Our calling originated in Him. He willed it. He purposed it. Was it in response, was it in response to a predisposed heart? He adds here a beautiful description of that calling. He says what? It's in response. Even before, go back to the, go back and read the verse. Going to his own purpose and grace, which was given when? To us in Christ, Jesus, before, before time began. Don't ask me to explain it. I really, my point here is not trying to make a theological point, but just really a practical one. To understand the fullness to which the extent that my calling has nothing to do with I, what I could have added to it or contributed to it. He says, before time began, grace, he willed it, he purposed it. Calvin says this, Calvin says, If God chose us before the creation of the world, he could not have considered the question of works, which could have had not existed. Were, had not been in existence at a period when we ourselves were not. Our calling originated within the depths of his grace. Titus uses the word mercy and kindness to describe that calling. So we have a calling rooted in the sole mercy and grace of God. Our calling is fulfilled in Christ, revealed by the appearing of our Savior, and fulfilled in his death and resurrection on the cross. Thirdly, according to his appointing. His calling is the reason and the source of his appointing. He's appointed a preacher, apostle, a teacher. The fruit of the Lord's salvific calling in his life. Everything I'm called to do finds its roots and its purpose in God's calling. 
Everything Paul was appointed to do, it wasn't because he had a special gift set. Of course, he did because God gave it to him. But it wasn't because he desired this or because he wanted to do this. It's because God called him to do it and appointed him to do that. You have a God-given call, and you have a God-given appointed life. And then simply according to his promise. Paul's purpose in his suffering is found in his holy calling. He goes on to describe this, and the promise of this calling rests on the one making the call and his ability to keep that which is committed until that day. If it originated with God, it will be completed with him as well. But let me look at the all-encompassing quality of the call. The first one here, I, I, I just love the imagery. I love the way Piper brings it out. But this is one, this is, there's two or three points here that really um, touch me more personally than others. But the first one here, a call that creates something out of nothing. A call that creates something out of nothing. God calls out, and in doing so, speaks creation into existence. When God calls, he creates. And he creates out of nothing. He brings, he, God's voice is this creative tool to bring life, to transform. I find the analogy, too, with, the, with Israel is this ex, the exact opposite of what idols were. He reminds the people of Israel. How many times does he remind people of Israel about the idols? What does he say about the idols? They can't do what? They can't hear, speak, and he speaks. And when he speaks, he brings life. It is a kind of call that creates what it demands, what Piper says in the video. I thought I like the way he words that. When God called Israel, he created people for his name. He was creating something that did not previously exist. And so it is with our holy calling. God is calling into existence that which does not exist. He didn't perfect something. He didn't improve on something. He brought light where there was darkness. He brought life where there was death. The beauty of the call is that God created something from nothing. And he called me. And then we have the church. What's the definition of the church? The called out ones. We're gathered here together as the called out ones. We've been called. And we're gathered here together as a church on that as well. I thought something else that was interesting I put down here in my notes. Today... Oftentimes, the term we hear more often in the church is not the called-out ones, but what? The seekers. Isn't it interesting that really we have something completely backwards? We have a society where many in, in, in church are focusing on who? On the seekers. In reality, we should be focusing on who? On the call, the one making the call. Not the ones seeking the call, but the one making the call. The church, man, man is not a seeker. He is a wanderer at best. But Christ is the real and only true seeker. Man have, many have that backwards. Man in his sin is not a seeker. He is a rebel. Christ is the only seeker. Seeking to save that which was lost. Isn't it interesting that today we, we're, we're focused so much on those who are seeking, but our salvation rests on the one who made the calling. And he called those who were not seeking. And he took from them those who were not desiring anything, who were dead, who were blind, who were deaf. And he spoke us into existence. And that call did not take you or I because he saw something Meritus in you. He saw something in you that was valuable. No, he called you and out of nothing created something. That right there is worth resting on. A call that anchors our identity in Christ. As men, we tend to find our identity in the nature of our work. 
We gain a sense of value. We gain a sense of purpose. We gain a sense of belonging to society by that which we do rather than that which we are in Christ. But yet we're called by him, to him, and for him. And I tell you, that's something that's always going to be something we battle with. I notice even in our churches, if we introduce someone new, we're going to preface it by saying, oh, he's a, he's a doctor. Because there's something more special about that, perhaps. We, we preface it by an identity that relates to what they do in the world. Because as, as men, we, we identify ourselves with the job that we do. And we take pride in that. We should take pride in what we do. But our identity should not be anchored in what we're doing, but in who we are. Because if, you're, if, you're, if your identity is anchored in what you're doing and you're pursuing that identity, you'll be tempted to compromise who you are to fulfill and, and accomplish that identity. And then when that identity is taken away, you're lost, you're troubled, you're confused because you found, you found stability in that identity. You like telling people, well, I'm a software engineer. There were one, I forget, one little skit. A man was joking and said, I wish, he says, I, I could have walked on the moon. Because that way, you know, when you're in a conversation with men, everyone kind of ups one on the other person. Oh, you're, you're, you're a math teacher. Yeah, I'm a, you know, NASA engineer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then one guy goes, I walked on the moon. Who can top that? You know, we're, we're all, our identity rests so easily so often on, on what we're doing, on that diploma on the wall, on that career that we've built. But the first response to God's calling is, is, is denying self, is embracing him. I love what he says here, put that in the notes as well. Man without Christ has things completely backwards. Professing to be unsure of God, they pretend to be sure of themselves. But followers of Christ, on the other hand, put things the other way around. Unsure of ourselves, we are sure of God. I can say what I've been many times in my life unsure of myself. You invest so many years in, in one ministry and one person, and they're, and they're lost. They seemingly turn their back on, on everything, and you sit there wondering, have I wasted my time building something? Because we're builders, right? Men are builders. We want to have a sense of accomplishment, of fulfillment. At the end of the day, we want to feel like I got something done today. Most of you feel good at the end of the day if you got something done. We're designed that way. We're created that way. But... My identity is anchored in my calling in Christ. Thirdly, I put down a, a holistic call. A holistic call leads to a spiritual walk and a spiritual life. It leaves no room for contemplative life. A holistic call means it's, it's complete. We've, we've in, in ministry, in church, and in spiritual life, we've... Many times we've professional, there's a professionalization of sorts, leaving the work to paid professionals. The church has been left to, to paid professionals who are trained to, to go to school and prepare and, and train and teach. But this has led to a form of dualism where there's a higher calling, there's a sacred calling, and there's a secular calling. There's a higher calling and there's a lower calling. There's a contemplative calling, there's the active calling. But the calling means that everyone, everywhere, and everything fulfills his and her calling. I remember coming back from, from the field on, on furlough for, for a few months, and a friend took us out. They had a lake house. If you have a lake house, it's a good thing. Don't, don't take that to be a negative. But I remember just, I remember being out on the lake, and we're... He's got, you know, he's got the standard, you know, American life, the little the boat, the two jet skis, and we're going across the lake to the dock over there with a pizza place, and we're having a good time. And he says, he 
goes, Jeff, you know, this is, I want you to know, says, going into business is a calling. This was my calling, to go into business and, and make money so that we can bless people. I'm, you know what came through my mind? I said, man, I missed my calling. I said, wait a minute, I, I you know, what, what, Lord, what happened? It's amazing how we, what, what interesting thing goes in the book he goes in to describe the, how we went from a, a Catholic perspective of, of, of calling and spirituality to a Protestant one. He says in the Catholic one, we had a f- complete form of dualism where the only ones that were allowed to have spiritual work were those who were the monks. That's why the, the reading was, even in, 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 wasn't in a vernacular language, so the, the reading was in, in Latin. They couldn't understand it because there's a total separation between the religious and the secular. Now, the Protestants brought that around to the, the other side of things, almost to another extreme where work was sacred. And so where there's, on, on the healthy side, they brought the, the idea that your, your work was part of your, your spiritual task. And the, Re- the Reformation changed the way that every task given to man was God's honoring task. Calling gave humble people with ordinary tasks, the vision of investing in internal things. Their calling gave the believer the task of making Christ Lord of every part of his life. The calling gave a new understanding as to how talents should be invested and in spiritual gifts that were given. So the Reformation really changed that, that Catholic perception of what religious, secular, and religious life looked, sacred looked like to bringing it down to everything everywhere should fulfill the calling. Number four, put down a call to, to someone. Now, there's, there's more notes in here, and you're certainly, again, I said I had more notes in what I want to cover, but there's a couple areas I want to make sure I've got time to cover as well. Number four, he says, a call to someone, not something. Our primary calling as a follower of Christ is by him, to him, and for him. We are called to someone, not to something or somewhere. And this calling leads us to speak and live and act entirely for him. Let us not forget that in our calling, we're first and foremost called to to God, called to someone. And as we search our calling in life, and as a young person... Boy, see, you know, seeking what my daughter right now is a freshman in college. You know, what's going to, what should be my major? She's obsessed with this idea of what my major should be. She says, you know, I want it to be something that makes me sound smart. That's real deep. You know, we're looking at real calling here. Uh, so I don't, you know, I don't want because what you're walking around school and everybody says, oh, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that, and she's here and hasn't decided yet. And this, this sense of belonging, this sense of identity, she wants, she wants this title. I'm pursuing this. And even in the midst of that, and even though if some of those things are honorable, my first and foremost calling is to him, not to something or to somewhere. Because that something might change, that somewhere might change, but he obviously does not. So as men... As we enjoy the work of our hands, let us be mindful that we are not primarily called to do something. We are called to someone. We are not called first to some special work in which we'll find significance, in which we'll find worth, in which we'll find value. We are called to God and we're called to his purposes. We always... You know, one of the biggest struggles, even as a missionary in the mission field, is that the work that you invest in, you don't, you don't see the results for years. You know how difficult it is to invest in a ministry and in people, knowing that it's going to take years and years and years to see fruit, lasting fruit? Because you, you have this, this, this sense of understanding that you want, you want your life, I mean, every one of us, has a sense of we want our life to be significant. We want it to be purposeful. We want it to, to have contributed to something. One of the greatest 
things my, my father struggles with. My father was a faithful man and is a faithful man. He turned, his birthday was yesterday, I think he turned 74 yesterday. Served the Lord all his life as a faithful missionary. I remember him telling me, he says, he says Jeff, because we're going through struggles on a mission field, he says, remember, they didn't invite us here. God called us here. That just changed your whole reason for being there. But the other thing is, after years of ministry, one of the works that he had spent 20 years establishing closed his doors. He had been gone at that point. He had gone on to another ministry. But he invested 20 years in this one ministry. It dwindled down. Fewer people. There's another church in town. They agreed together to, to merge the churches, and the doors of that church closed, and those believers went to, to another congregation. You know how difficult it was for my father? And really, honestly, still today, difficult for him to talk about it. Because there's this little nagging voice in his mind that tells him that I just spent 20 years investing in something that closed your doors and did not continue on. And if he didn't follow that by saying, but by the grace of God, I remember so-and-so coming to know the Lord. I remember so-and-so coming to know the Lord. I remember as a young man going to see him speak at these meetings, not just in church, but other meetings, evangelistic meetings, and sharing the gospel. But he has to continually struggle in his heart that somehow I did not build something that lasts. And he has to fight that with what? I had a call. I, went th- I didn't go there because they invited me to go there. I went there because I was called to go. And the gospel did its work. And the gospel called others and changed lives. And what a beauty that is. But I tell you, this, this is what's going to anchor you. Now, as a young person, as a young man, you've got life before you. You're excited about what you're going to do in life. And you're, you commit yourself to these things. But when you start hitting 40, then 50, then 60, that's when the nature of the call really begins to surface in your life. He put something down here I thought was really good. It says, modern work lacks meaning. Modern work lacks meaning because meaning comes from a sense of calling. I'm still under, under number four. Meaning comes from a sense of calling. And without a call, man is left with only vain, empty pursuits. Calling gives purpose. Calling gives meaning for our doing which helps us rethink. It's not my, my job that provides meaning. It's my calling that provides meaning. So in reality, God's going to call you to a number of things, and you're going to fulfill the work of your hands, and you're going to be faithful and to work and provide for your families, and you're going to use the, the gifts and abilities God's given to you. But anchor your sense of purpose in the calling of God. Men who face midlife crises. Now, some of you may have faced that. Midlife crises. They're due to what? Why do men have midlife crises? Now, of course, get some feedback here, but make it hypothetical. Why do, go, why do men go through midlife crises? Because <laughs> the world tells you you should have one. I mean, what do most of us think when we see this 55-year-old man driving down the road with a convertible new Corvette? What are we thinking? Why do men go through midlife crisis? The body, the body starts not keeping up with where your mind is. You're out there on a baseball court, and uh, you're thinking, your mind thinks I can still do this, and your body stays behind. Self-centeredness. You made it about yourself. You made it about the career that you're building. Covet. You're not achieving or attaining what you've, you've been coveting and desiring. 
Mark. So you believe what the world says about it. And you're not processing things biblically. Our understanding of, of God's call upon our lives answers the question of a midlife crisis. I put down that midlife crisis is generally due to the tensions between three very different desires. The one for successful careers, the one for satisfying work, and the one for rich personal lives. Early in life, the difference between our personal lives and our work may not be marked or very obvious, but as life goes on, the gaping hole emerges between that which that, that leads to these frustrations. This hole between a successful career that I desired, these anticipations, this satisfying work, these rich personal lives, because it's anchored in my pursuits. And as life progresses, we start realizing there's a gaping hole between what I'm chasing and what I'm actually going to achieve. It's kind of interesting. My wife and I, you know, we have our mother-in-law, I have my mother-in-law living with us. About a month ago, we thought we lost her. She's 92. She she got an infection, and she was in the hospital for a few days. And you know, with COVID, you can't visit, you can't see her, you can't talk. You you walk through this little Zoom phone and you try. I mean, it, it's just just crazy what that's created. But it's been for me. It was this this contemplation of seeing someone how it feels coming at the end of your life. What do you have left to hold on to? Your call, your holy calling. And so, whether you're in your 20s and you're building your life, or you're in your 50s and 60s and you start looking back at your life and you start wondering, what, you know, am I achieving? Do I still have time to achieve what I want to achieve? Regardless of where you're at in that process, that your, your heart might be anchored in God's calling upon your life. And thankfully, it didn't rest on anything that I have done. A call which demands a response. I think he brings that out. Piper brings that out well in his, in his, in his that little three-minute video. The call demands a response. We can't stay indifferent. We can't stay contemplative. He, he, I put down this one phrase I thought was beautiful. Disciples are not so much those who follow, but those who must follow. Disciples are not just those who follow Christ, those who, who must, are so compelled, the calling compels them that they must follow. Ephesians 4, that we're well familiar with, says, therefore the prison of the Lord, I beseech you to what? To walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. The calling is so compelling it's so strong that my response must be to a desire to follow, not just a passive contemplation, but a desire to live and walk and worthy of that calling. Don't really have time to go through much of the history part here, but as you read through Luther's stand, well known, you've probably seen. They've had movies on it, and just when Martin Luther stood before the Emperor Charles V, giving an answer for his positions, knowing that his, his stand risked his life in that moment. And Luther responded, and as you describe in, in Bain's biography, talks about this, and he says, people, when, when Luther hesitated... People thought he was hesitating because he was fearful and was choosing his words wisely because he was fearful and in, so in, in awe with being in presence of the emperor and all those that were surrounded. But in the biography, he describes Luther as saying this, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. How is our response to the call? Because God's call is, demands a complete and a full response. 
There's a few more points here. Number six is, is probably my favorite. The call to an audience of one. And this term is probably used elsewhere, but this is what he uses specifically in the book. And I, I just love that description of being called to an audience of one. It's almost impossible to truly march to the beat of our own drum. Most of us do things with an eye on an audience or another. The question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience do we have? The trouble comes when we live life before an audience of one, but that audience is not God, the audience is us. And then, a life lived listening and responding to the decisive call of God is a life lived before one audience that trumps all others, the audience of one. There's just something beautiful about that picture he he describes here about being before an audience. He said, we're all before an audience. But which audience is that? Which audience am I concerned with? Which is why I described right in the beginning as, as, as I walking through this and thinking through this, I'm still thinking about Gainsbourg. Gainsbourg, the audience she has now, now she's before the supreme authority, the supreme judge. She's before that audience of one that she should have been most concerned about her entire life. That's the audience that we should be concerned with. I love the way he words it. Life or living before an audience of one transforms all endeavors. The greatest deeds are done before the audience of one, and that is enough. Knowing that we serve our lives and we answer the call, and that knowing that I stand before an audience of one is enough. That suffices me. That's sufficient. He says, those that are mesmerized and captivated by such a view of God will care less about lesser audiences. And as church leaders, we're to be consumed not with pleasing the one who seeks, but pleasing the one who calls. What a difference that makes. And instead of being, he, he gives an analogy. He says, are we... Are we Are we gallop poles or are we gyroscopes? Do we test the winds and see what people think or do we give direction? Are we, he says, are we thermometers or are we that measure temperature? Or are we thermostats that set temperatures? Well, what he's saying is that well, as we stand before an audience of one, my only response before him is to be pleasing to him. And, and once I'm captivated by that audience, every other audience just pales in comparison. And my response to him is complete. And when I live before the audience of one, and he smiles on me, then neither the smile or the frown of men affects me. I can remember um, going to a, a neighborhood fellowship. In the, in, in the June, there's a music festival in France where the music festival, the neighborhoods, uh, you block off neighborhoods, you have neighborhood parties. It's not Oktoberfest because we don't have all that beer drinking. But it's just some kind of fest. And uh, I remember going to our neighborhood one and showing up, and big tall guy. We've had him over at the house before, witnessed him. Well, here comes the preacher. In that moment, you're thinking, ugh. Here I am, just want to blend in, fellowship with people. And he gets singly out. And, and, and of course, because he's a mocker, he's in, he doesn't know the Lord. But in that moment, being captivated by the one audience is enough. We're knowing that he smiles upon us makes me not worry about the smiles or frown of men around me. I live before the audience of one, and before others I have nothing to prove, nothing to gain, and nothing to lose. Last point, point seven, I put a call to excellence. Now listen, I have my French likings, and so even if, if Mark Hager makes fun of the French, and uh, I don't know where they come up with all these French jokes, but they don't run out of them. But 
just to kind of, you know, point at you a little bit, I have to quote a French person here. Uh, Blaise, Blaise Pascal is a French mathematician, describes this call to God in this way. He says, God's calling is a key to igniting a passion for the deepest growth and the highest heroism in life. I trust that that type of calling and contemplating God's call ignites such a passion in us. I think Oswald Chambers describes it well in his book, right? My utmost for his highest. He goes on in the book to say, Every man is made to reach out beyond his grasp. The call is always to the higher, the deeper, and the farther. And every time we're tempted to rest on one's own accomplishments and one's laurels, the call of God wakes us up, summons us to rise to the occasion. I think I put this one in your notes. There is no yawning in response to this call. The call of God doesn't provide, doesn't call upon a response of, of, of yawning and contemplation, but rising up to answer the call and do so as a call to to excellence. A few concluding thoughts here. We are each called individually accountable to God to please Him alone and eventually to be approved by Him alone. So let us not be tempted to look around, compare notes, and use the progress of others to judge the success of our own calling. There's something beautiful about calling. Calling equalizes even the distinction between clergy and lay people, it's a matter of everyone, everywhere, and in everything, living life in response to God's summons. God calls men. He calls you. I don't know what, God's, I don't know what the world's going to throw at you. I don't know what you're going to, you know, even in these times, those things that are certain become uncertain. You know how many people that were in, in, in the pipeline for these jobs because they were told this is a guaranteed job? I mean, you go into flight school at Liberty and you're going to, get, you're going to be flying hours. You're going to be coming out. Because there was a time where that's true. Right now, all that kind of is unsettling. We have a friend who is a young pilot who is working at Lowe's and doing DoorDash because he can't get his flying hours. You know, if you anchor your life in something other than God's call and you respond to an audience of one, what a difference it will make in, in your life. God calls men who will be committed to their life task with no reservations, no retreats, and no regrets. So keep your calling real. Keep your calling fresh before you. It will help you have purpose in life which means you will grow, you'll mature along the way to the very end. Our calling helps us finish well because it prevents us from confusing our occupations with our God-given appointing. It'll help us finish well because our calling helps us finish well because it encourages us to leave the entire outcome of our lives to God. So I trust this morning that... Maybe there's just a phrase here or a phrase there that will, you know, stick with us. I mean, most of the time we hear, you know, we're retained as a very small fragment of what we hear. And maybe from six to seven, that's even a smaller percentage. I don't know. But maybe a few things today as, as you walk away from here and say, Lord, I want to, first of all, just, just, just contemplating the call and the goodness and the greatness of this call and our response to that is as Ezekiel, as he heard the voice of the Lord just fell upon his face. But two, regardless of where you're at in life, whether you're at the beginning looking forward to what your career is going to look like, how you're going to build your life, what you're going to do with your hands, or you're on the other end, you're looking back at the last 20 years and what you've built, what you haven't built, anchor your identity in God's call on your life. That's your higher purpose. And live your lives before that audience of one. And the Lord, use that to encourage in such a way. Let's close in prayer this morning.
Well, Father, we, we can study, we can read your, your word, and we can contemplate these truths, and yet, what a, what a small fraction do we really understand and grasp. But Lord, I just receive it with such gratefulness. Lord, I, I want to live my life in such a way that I find complete fulfillment in your call that I might find rest that Lord if I work the work of my hands is designed to, to, to glorify you it's not about me it's about you and Lord with these men here this morning they're going to, they're going to have a natural desire to want to be to have significance to build with their hands to, to be fruitful but, Lord, may that all be done in light of your calling. So we thank you, Lord, for these truths. Bless these men today. Watch them at work. Guard their families. We thank you, Lord, for this blessed time together this morning. In your name we pray.